0: And as we prepare to consider God's Word together, let me begin with a couple of questions. These are not questions that you are to answer out loud, obviously, but just to contemplate. What is your soul worth? What is your eternal destiny worth? I hope you know that nothing compares with those things. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? In other words, everything pales in comparison when it comes to the issue of your eternal destiny and your soul. That's why the book of Romans is so important. It tells us how to be right with God. Let's turn together to the book of Romans as we consider the life-changing message from Paul's masterpiece. I wish I knew, oh, how I wish I knew a a way to better help us appreciate the greatness of this letter penned by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Down through the centuries, God has used the book of Romans in some powerful and mind-blowing ways. For example, Augustine, or Augustine, however you prefer to pronounce his name, came to faith in Jesus Christ by reading the book of Romans, and he became one of the greatest theologians to ever live. Listen to this description by F.F. Bruce, and I quote, In the summer of A.D. 386, Aurelius Augustinus, native of North Africa, and now for two years professor of rhetoric at Milan, sat weeping in the garden of his friend Olypius, almost persuaded to begin a new life, yet lacking the final resolution to break with the old. As he sat, he heard a child singing in the neighboring house, Tole lege, tole lege, take up and read, take up and read. Taking up the scroll which lay at his friend's side, he let his eyes rest on these words. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. No further would I read, he tells us, Nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. The conversion of Augustine from the book of Romans by the power of the Holy Spirit. Martin Luther also came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by reading the book of Romans. Listen to this description by Dr. F.F. Bruce. Quote, In November 1515, Martin Luther, Augustinian monk, and professor of sacred theology at the University of Wittenberg, began to expound Paul's epistle to the Romans to his students and continued this course until the following September. As he prepared his lectures, he came more and more to appreciate the centrality of the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, he wrote. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteous in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy He justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise, the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to be inexpressibly sweet and greater love, the message of Paul became, became to me a gateway to heaven." End quote. That was what was written about Luther's experience with the book of Romans. Later, Luther himself wrote this about the book of Romans. Quote, this epistle is the real chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, which indeed deserves that a Christian not only know it word for word by heart, but deal with it daily as with daily bread of the soul, for it can never be read or considered too much or too well, and the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. End quote. It was primarily the book of Romans that led the way in the Protestant Reformation. When the truth of the book of Romans gripped the heart of Martin Luther and the other reformers, the truth that man is justified by faith alone, apart from works, that was the beginning of the Reformation. John Wesley was also transformed by the truth of the book of Romans. Listen to this description. Quote, in the evening of May 24th, 1738, John Wesley went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, he wrote in his journal, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death, end quote. The book of Romans was the main source behind the Wesleyan revival. Frederick Louis Godet said this in the introduction to his commentary on Romans, quote, the probability is that every great, listen to this, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of this book. One of the great preachers in the early Christian church, certainly one of the most eloquent preachers the church has ever known, was John Chrysostom, or Chrysostom, however you pronounce his name, of Constantinople. He said that the epistle to the Romans was so remarkable that he had it read to him twice every week. William Tyndale, in his prologue to the book of Romans, said this, For as much as this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, and most pure euangelion, the Greek word for gospel, that is to say glad tidings and what we call gospel. I think it appropriate that every Christian man not only know it by rote and without the book, but also exercise himself therein evermore continually as with the daily bread of the soul. No man verily can read it too often or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is, the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is, and the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it, so great treasure of spiritual things lieth hidden therein. Wherefore, let every man without exception exercise himself therein diligently and record it night and day continually until he be fully acquainted with this book. The book of Romans. John Calvin said this about the book of Romans. When anyone gains the knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. H.A. Ironside said, The epistle to the Romans is undoubtedly the most scientific statement of the divine plan for the redemption of mankind that God has been pleased to give us. No other book in all the Bible gives greater detail concerning the way to God, the way to be right with God, than does Romans 1 through 5. Samuel Taylor Coleridge a man who was well-versed in German literature and who had one of the most acute minds that the history of English literature has ever known, said the book of Romans is, quote, the most profound piece of writing in existence, end quote. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul from the city of Corinth between A.D. 56 and 58, near the end of his third missionary journey. From the best we can tell, it was carried to the Christians at Rome by one of the deaconesses of the church at Sancria. Her name was Phoebe, according to chapter 16, verse 1. This church at Rome was probably born as a result of converts from the day of Pentecost who carried the gospel back to this imperial city. Acts 2.10 tells us that the crowd that assembled to hear Peter preach on the day of Pentecost was made up of visitors from Rome, both Jews. And proselytes, Those who were converted that day, on the day of Pentecost, probably took the truth of the gospel back to the city of Rome. So Paul had not been involved in the establishing of this church. No apostle had been directly involved in it. So Paul wanted to go there to minister to them. He says that at the beginning of the letter, and he says that at the end of the letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 9, where he says... For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. You can see the intensity in Paul's desire to go see the church at Rome. Over in chapter 15, as he was winding down the letter, he expressed this same desire. Look at what he says in chapter 15, verse 22. He says, For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now, no longer having a place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Well, Paul did end up there, finally, but not as he planned. He ended ended up there as a prisoner of the Roman government, and after a short release and re-imprisonment, he was executed there in Rome by being beheaded. But Paul had never been to Rome when he wrote this letter. Evidently, he knew some of the believers personally in this church because in chapter 16, he greets them by name. He probably got acquainted with them in other cities as he and they traveled around. So he did know some of the people in this church. But there were many in the church he did not know and who did not know him. For that reason, he makes a thorough and complete presentation of his theological and doctrinal position. That's what the book of Romans really is. It is a thorough and complete presentation of the message Paul preached to others. As a result, it is very theological in content and very practical in subject matter. It has both elements because it is a thorough presentation of Paul's teaching. You want to make sure that these people who were in this key city, the imperial city, and especially those who did not know him, he wanted to make sure they knew exactly what he believed about the gospel and what he taught about the gospel and what he proclaimed about the gospel. So this book tells us what what Paul preached as the gospel of God. The letter opens and closes with the mention of the gospel of God all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse. says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. The word gospel, or the Greek word euangelion, means good news. So this was Paul's message of good news. In chapter 15, again at the end, he mentions this. He says in chapter 15, verse 15, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. So this book is the good news of God. Romans is the good news of God. Now, we hear a lot of bad news today. Newspapers are full of bad news. The TV is full of bad news. The radio is full of bad news. The internet is full of bad news. But the book of Romans is good news. The best news. Here's a question. Why is this? In our English Bibles, not just English Bibles, but in the order of uh, our Bibles, why is this the first letter to a church immediately following Acts? Why not Ephesians? Why not Colossians? The order of the books is not inspired. You know that. Why is this first? Right after Acts, after the history of the church, why is this the very first letter? The answer is because of its importance. It was not the first letter written, not even Paul's first letter written. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, "Quote. It has been put first from the very beginning, and all have accorded it this position. It has been recognized as the epistle in which we are face to face with all the foundation truths of the Scripture. The theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, here's the phrase, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. This book then is all about the good news of the righteousness of God. To say it another way, it answers the question, how can a man be right with God? Beloved, that's the most important issue in the universe. The most important question that has ever been asked by anyone at any time was asked by Job when in Job 9.2 he said, But how can a man be righteous before God? What's more important than that? Nothing. The book of Romans tells us how to be right with God positionally, relationally, practically. It is a logical and systematic presentation of righteousness. One of the things unique about this book is the teaching format that Paul uses. He uses the question and answer format in Romans more than in any of his other letters, by far. Let me just give you some examples. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? See the questions? Skip down to verse 21 of this same chapter. Verse 21, he says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? This is his format throughout this letter. Look at chapter 3, how often it occurs. Chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Look at verse 7. For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. Skip down to verse 27, same chapter. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. No. No, by the law of faith. Verse 29. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And Paul continues this style. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? Verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God in it, and it was credited him for righteousness. Down in verse 9, chapter 4, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. You see, Paul grabs our attention throughout this letter by asking questions, penetrating questions, and then he answers them. Now, watch this as you study Romans, because sometimes these are legitimate questions that Paul sets forth. He knows that his teaching will raise a question, so he anticipates it, asks the question, and then answers it. Other times, other times Paul is anticip- uh, anticipating questions that would be asked by those who are objecting to his teaching. And he knows because he had taught by, for many years by this time. He knew the objections and so he anticipates them. He asks the question and answers the objection in advance. Let me show you one example. Jump over to chapter 6 or a few examples. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under law but under grace? Grace. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? Don't Don't you know this? Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Look at chapter 8. He does this again. He continues this pattern of questions. Chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore also is risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. What or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Question after question after question. Look at chapter 9. Just two examples in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unfair? Is God unrighteous? Look at chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. Look at chapter 10. This is chapter 10 really uses this format. There's just a series of questions. Notice, in beginning in verse 14, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Verse 16, But have they not all obeyed the gospel? For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, Have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has got out, gone out to the end of the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, and then he quotes. One more example, chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? So you see, Paul uses this interesting format of question and answer to make his points throughout the book, to develop his argument. As I mentioned a moment ago, Romans is a logical And systematic presentation of righteousness. So I have chosen to outline the book around the concept of righteousness. If you have an outline there, if you grabbed one when you came in, you can see this. It's just the outline is all around the concept of righteousness. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we see God's righteousness introduced. Those verses are the salutation and introduction to the rest of the book... And as we saw earlier, Paul states his theme in verses 16 and 17 where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for it, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul's theme is the righteousness of God. But as Murray stated... The gospel is the power of God unto salvation is meaningless apart from sin, condemnation, misery, and death. That's why Paul, that's why Paul immediately, after this, this theme statement in verses 16 and 17, Paul immediately launches into his next section, God's righteousness needed because of condemnation. And that is presented in 118 through 320. Paul states the theme of this large section in chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Men and women deserve God's wrath. That's Paul's point in this large section. Just in case there are those who will disagree, Paul goes into detail. In 1, through 32, he presents an airtight case proving that Gentiles are condemned. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, he presents an airtight case proving that moralists are condemned. In chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 8, he presents an airtight case proving that the Jews are condemned. That's everybody. His summary is chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, where he concludes that all of mankind is condemned. Notice how he, in this summary rapid-fire sort of bullet-point approach, he says, verse 9, chapter 3, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin, As it is written, and here's sort of a machine-gun, rapid-fire approach. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law... That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. That's the bad news. We're all guilty before God in our natural condition. But remember, this book is all about the good news. The bad news is that we are not righteous, so we need righteousness. The good news is that God has provided the righteousness we need. As Murray put it, only a God-righteousness can measure up to the desperateness of our need... And make the gospel the power of God unto salvation. So Paul launches into his next section. In 321 through 521, Paul describes God's righteousness imputed through justification. And once again, right at the beginning, he states his theme for the section. Chapter 3, verse 21, he says, But now... But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. He is saying, listen, it is possible for man to be righteous before God, but it's not earned by works, by religion, by deeds. Verse 21 calls this righteousness The righteousness of God, not the righteousness of man. If we could work for it, if we could earn it, if we could merit it, it would be our righteousness. But the kind of righteousness Paul is talking about does not come from ourselves. It comes from God. It's the righteousness of God. And he says here in verse 21, it's the same righteousness the Old Testament prophets spoke of when they preached and wrote. It's a righteousness apart from the law. It's a righteousness not obtained by works, not obtained by deeds. This kind of righteousness can't be earned. So how do we get it? How do we obtain it? Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness is not obtained by behaving. It is obtained by believing. The, w- the only way we can ever be right before God is by faith in Jesus Christ. We can never earn a righteous standing before God by works. A righteous standing before God comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. And according to verse 22, this righteousness is available to all who believe. The explanation of this doctrine is given throughout the rest of chapter 3. Because it is so important, Paul doesn't just state the fact in verses 21 and 22 and leave it at that. He wants to make sure everyone understands what he's saying. So he explains further in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, he gives illustrations of God's righteousness imputed. He uses Abraham and David as examples or illustrations of what he's talking about. And then in chapter 5, he explains the results of God's righteousness imputed through justification. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. This is not the peace of God, peace in your heart, peace in your soul. This is peace with God in the sense of no enmity, no alienation, no guilt. Peace with God. In chapter 6, Paul moves to the subject of God's righteousness imparted, which is sanctification. He deals with that from 6.1 through 8.17. We know he is concerned with sanctification in this section because, number one, the last appearance of the word justification was back in chapter 5, verse 18, but in chapter 6, Paul clearly deals with overcoming the practice of sin and not the penalty of sin. And also, it's interesting that in chapter 7, he makes statements about hating evil, desiring to do good, delighting in the law of God. Those are the attributes, characteristics of a regenerate person who wants to grow, who wants to be sanctified, not positionally, but practically. So, Paul is dealing with sanctification in this section. He begins with a question in chapter 6, verse 1 What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That launches Paul into a discussion about the relationship between sanctification and sin, which is covered throughout this sixth chapter. In verses 1 through 14, Paul anticipates a misapplication, a misuse of his teaching in chapter 5, verse 20, where he said, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Paul knew that some might make the inaccurate logical deduction from that to say, Hey, listen. Since grace abounded in sin, we should just continue in our sin so grace will abound even more. And he answers that question with the strongest negative in the Greek language in verse 2. Translated in mind, certainly not. The King James, God forbid... May it never be. All the translations have something different because they're trying to bring out the intensity of this little Greek phrase. And I personally like to, if I were translating, I would say, don't ever let that thought enter your mind. Don't ever let that thought enter your mind. God's plan is for us to be released not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. That's what chapter 6 is about. Chapter 7 deals with the relationship between sanctification and law. Paul wants to make sure that everyone understands that the law cannot justify, nor can it sanctify. You can't be made holy by trying to obey the Mosaic law. And that leads Paul to chapter 8. Verses 1 through 17 of chapter 8 set forth the glorious truth concerning the relationship between sanctification, and the Holy Spirit of God. But even though the Holy Spirit of God resides within, we'll never be completely released from sin until we're glorified. So Paul moves on to that subject, God's righteousness perfected in glorification, which is presented in verses 18 through 39 of chapter 8. Then, as Paul concludes what is chapter 8 in our English Bibles, of course it wasn't chapter 8 when Paul wrote it, Then Paul turns a major corner. By far the most difficult section in the book of Romans is chapters 9, 10, and 11. Many have struggled with how these chapters fit into the overall flow and theme of the book. I believe they answer a key key question in the minds of many people, and it is this. Okay, Paul, we've been tracking with you for eight chapters now about the righteousness of God. If God's righteousness is obtained the way you've been explaining, Paul, then how does God's commitment to Israel fit into this scheme since Israel, for the most part, has rejected the righteousness of God? They've rejected the gospel. How does this fit then? God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham and his people. How does this fit? Paul deals with that in chapters 9 through 11 where he covers God's righteousness rejected by Israel. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, he discusses Israel's past condition, their election by God, the fact that they were chosen by God and chosen by God unconditionally. So in Paul's mind, it's obvious that God has not reneged on his covenant. God's not finished with Israel. In chapter 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 21, he discusses Israel's present condition. What is their present spiritual condition? They've rejected the righteousness of God. Jewish people today are not saved because they're Jewish people. If they've rejected the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God, they're lost. And they are lost. And that leads Paul to chapter 11, verses 1 through 36, where he discusses Israel's future position of restoration. Paul wants, it, wants to make it clear that Israel's rejection is not total. That's chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. And most importantly, he wants us to understand that Israel's rejection is not final. That's chapter 11, verses 11 through 36. God will return to Israel, the Jewish people. He will return to his work with the Jewish people and bring them to repentance and faith. They have to be brought to faith because as he has explained here in the book of Romans, the only way a person is right with God is through faith. So to complete the covenant with Israel, God has to bring them to salvation. Then Paul moves on to God's righteousness demonstrated by application of divine truth in daily living. That is covered in chapter 12, verse 1 through 15, verse 13. Notice how this section begins in chapter 12, verse 1. Two very familiar verses. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's as if Paul is saying, listen, in light of all that God has done for us, as I just explained in all of these preceding chapters, the least we can do, this is the least we can do, is to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices. Those verses describe our responsibility to God. In fact, this entire section... From 12:1 to 15:13 is a description of our responsibility to live out God's righteousness in various relationships. Our responsibility to God is presented in twelve one and 2 as we just read. Our responsibility to the church is presented in 12:3 through 8. Our responsibility to society is presented in chapter 12 verses 9 through 21. Our responsibility to government is presented in chapter 13. Our responsibility to other believers is presented in 14.1 through 15.13. All of these relationships in which we should manifest the righteousness of God. You see, beloved, you've heard the saying, we are the only Bible some people will ever read. We're it. So we have the responsibility to demonstrate or live out God's righteousness in everyday life. And that's chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13 and then the epilogue or the closing of the book the book closes with some general statements about God's righteousness reflected that's what I've titled this last section God's righteousness reflected that is chapter 15 verse 14 through chapter 16 verse 27 three little subsections here in this final closing God's righteousness reflected in the life of the apostle Paul That's chapter 15, verses 14 through 33. Paul's very personal in that part of the letter. And you see God's righteousness reflected in his life, demonstrated. Then, God's righteousness reflected in the lives of faithful believers. That's chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, where Paul greets all these dear and precious saints, people who meant so much to him, people who were faithful to the Lord. And then finally, God's righteousness reflected in the lives of obedient believers Chapter 16, verses 17 through 27, where Paul gives some final admonitions, some final exhortations for us to be obedient. So this book is all about the righteousness of God. The gospel of God, which produces, which imputes to us, the righteousness of God, and hopefully then that is imparted to us in sanctification. It will be perfected one day in glorification. God will be righteous in his dealings with Israel, chapters 9 through 11. We should be righteous in our dealings, chapters 12 and following. So that's the book of Romans. As we close this quick whirlwind tour through the book of Romans, I have two questions to ask you, to ask myself, Two questions that this book forces us to ask and answer. Here's the first one. Do you know with absolute certainty, do you know with absolute certainty that you have the righteousness of God on your spiritual record? That is, the righteousness of God has been imputed to your account, your record, through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know that with absolute certainty? And then here's question number two. Assuming you can answer yes, honestly, genuinely, accurately, to question number one. Does the way we live demonstrate God's righteousness in our everyday life? Does the way we live demonstrate God's righteousness in everyday life? in our homes, in our places of work, at school, uh, in, in athletic competition. You just go down the, the, the list of all of the, the circles that, that you run in and all the relationships you have and all of the interactions. Does the righteousness of God shine through or is it demonstrated in our everyday life, in everything we do? Those are the two questions that the book of Romans forces us to ask and answer. Do you have the righteousness of God on your legal record? And do you live out the righteousness of God in everyday life? Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to do really just a sort of a jet tour through the book of Romans. There is so much here. It's such a powerful, powerful letter. uh, As we were encouraged by the quotes at the beginning, by all the, the men of God down through history who have been impacted by this marvelous epistle. No wonder it is first in our New Testament as far as the letters are concerned, right after the Gospels and Acts, placed there properly because of its importance, because of its scope because of its depth, because of its clarity, because of its detail. And so as we were exhorted in some of those quotes earlier, may we make sure, may we make sure that we have a proper understanding of this marvelous, precious book called Romans. May we make sure that we are familiar with it, that we know it, that we understand it. And Father, in closing, may we make sure that we are willing to honestly hear and address the two questions that the book forces us to ask. Do we know with absolute certainty that your righteousness is on our legal record, in our spiritual bank account, so that when we stand before you someday, it will not be in our own merit, it will not be in our own righteousness, which would be far insufficient? And if we have, by your grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, been granted imputed righteousness, may we go ahead and ask that second question. May we face that second question. Do we live out your righteousness in everyday life? In relation to the people in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment, in our classrooms, in our our, uh, sports teams, in our just whatever it is, whatever it is. May we be conscious of the responsibility to live out your righteousness to people around us. May you be pleased by your spirit to use our exposure to the book of Romans, though only in one brief message. May you be pleased to use it to impact our lives, to encourage us, challenge us, exhort us, admonish us, whatever the need may be. You know it. You know us perfectly. May you be pleased to use this marvelous epistle in our lives as we contemplate it and consider it and think on it. We pray this together in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.